Today's Crypto Daily Briefing is sponsored by Origin Dollar. With inflation still over 6% and CeFi lending platforms going bankrupt, DeFi protocols that earn interest on stablecoins are once again back on crypto investors' minds. APYs on Aave, Compound and Curve are currently around 2%. By the time you pay gas to stake and unstake, it's a question of if it's even worth it for most people. If you want to earn yield on your stablecoins without needing to pay gas, check out Origin Protocol's Origin Dollar stablecoin. OUSD's average APY over the past 30 days is 5%, twice the rate you get lending directly on blue chip protocols. The best part is the boosted yield isn't from leverage or extra risk, it's from extra collateral and is rigorously audited. This is because smart contracts on Curve and other dApps don't support rebasing, so their collateral is working for you. The way Origin describes it, for every $1 of OUSD, there's more than $1 in DeFi working for you. Origin wants you to know as the collateral earns yield through these dApps, the protocol routes rewards to your wallet on a daily basis. Do nothing and your OUSD balance grows daily. If you want to put your stable coins to work, check out Origin Dollar's website. You can mint OUSD from the dApp or swap your stable coins for it on Uniswap to start earning today. For those holding ETH, Origin Protocol is teasing the release of OETH, which does everything OUSD does, but for Ether. It holds liquid staking derivatives to optimize yield. Follow along on Origin Protocol's Twitter and Discord channels. Visit realvision.com slash origin dollar to learn more. Welcome to Crypto Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing, live from the Real Vision offices in Chelsea, New York. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by Justin Gilder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Legal Officer at Lumina, which he co-founded with our regular guest, Ram Aluwalia. Justin, welcome to Real Vision. Hi, Ash. Great to be here today. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. You have a really interesting background. You've worked as a regulatory lawyer. Uh, you've got a background in fintech. Tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got to where you are today. So I have a background in law, practiced law for the first half of my career. Really started at a couple of uh, large firms doing a variety of interesting work, representing individual Indians actually in the largest trust litigation in the history of the United States, which opened my eyes to financial services and trust and a lot of the interplay between politics and actual real world interaction between constituents, which was eye-opening. Mm. Also represented a number of financial institutions in a variety of regulatory and litigation matters. And after a while realized as much as I enjoyed that, I really wanted to get into business and left practice of law to form a boutique investment firm where did uh, some alternative investments. And ultimately at that institution, incubated and built out a trust company that I ended up leading as CEO. So that took me from practicing law for financial institutions to actually running and operating a financial institution, which gave me a really eye-opening experience from a different side of the uh, table. And after mm. building that business, exiting the business, I began to think about the intersection of TradFi and DeFi. And that was when I was introduced to Rom and the two of us see the future very similarly, even though it's murky, we do believe that there's an opportunity at the intersection of TradFi and DeFi that is uh, really in need of numerous different organizations, all the way from infrastructure to consumer facing uh, wealth management and the like. And so that's where we're really excited and what we're building. So I've got a operator, legal and regulatory background that gives me a lot of experience and makes me realize I don't know a lot because there's too much to know to do anything well. 
Justin, I know the feeling well. Your background really is ideal for a conversation like we're going to have today. Obviously, a lot happening, lots to talk about here. Let's first set the table by looking at some prices. Uh, let's take a look at Bitcoin first. Bitcoin uh, on my screen trading at 28,564. Uh, you're looking at a seven-day chart, so you can see the volatility that we've seen this week. It's been an unusual week in terms of trading patterns. Uh, also, let's flip over to Ethereum on my screen, 1,000. 860. Uh, again, uh, you can see this little bit of a leg up here on Ethereum in the last, uh, let's call it uh, seven days. We're up about 2.65%. On a 24-hour basis, we're up about 1.3%. So some upward momentum here on Ethereum. Lots happening in the space. Obviously, uh, the lead in terms of the stories that are garnering all the attention today uh, are very much on the traditional finance side. First Republic being sold to JP Morgan yesterday. Obviously, some regulatory action taking place over there. Uh, Justin, give us your thoughts on what's happening in that space. 50,000 foot overview. Yeah, so I'd start back where you started with uh, Bitcoin and ETH. And I was looking at the prices this morning and noting that uh, Bitcoin's up over 70% year to date and ETH is up over 54% year to date. I think it's a really interesting dynamic that's at play. We're have been for years and continue to be losing faith in centralized institutions. And I think this banking crisis uh, continues that unfortunate trend, which right. is both in the faith and confidence in the banking system, the individual banks, and of course, the regulators that ultimately should have been doing more to ensure that these things did not play out the way they did. So as unfortunate as it is, I think the loss in faith, faith in centralized institution is justified. And ultimately, that continues to play out in decentralization being something that consumers really turn to as a potential alternative to what they force, what they see as the lack of a centralized institution being able to protect and preserve their buying power. Yeah. Uh, so to precisely that point. Based on where we are right now, we know what the challenges are. You just articulated them there. What's the likely forward trajectory from a digital asset perspective, and why are you so bullish on it? Well, I'm bullish on it because I think that there's no good alternative, right? I don't think that we've seen regulators or government institutions really do enough quickly enough and with enough bipartisan support to address the real issues that our country faces. I don't want to get like deep into some of the political issues, but I think the point being inaction at the federal level is the norm. And so for people to think that the solution will come from Washington is foolish. And I think most people have realized that. And so I think that drives adoption over time of decentralized solutions, whether that's smart contracts or digital assets themselves because there has to be a better alternative. And right now, the best alternative that we've created as a society is uh, in the form of digital assets and the blockchain that enables decentralization and really enables this lack of coordination and centralization as a failure to turn into a real feature of a new system that's being built. So Justin, let me ask you this, what does that process look like? I think everyone understands uh, the weaknesses they've been brought into specific relief here uh, by what we're seeing in the traditional finance system, by what we're seeing with essentially now uh, four bank failures, depending upon how you're counting them. But what does that trajectory look like? Obviously, there's a great deal of passion for this technology in terms of decentralized digital assets, but how does that transition begin to look? How are you betting on it unfolding? And what's your perspective on how we may be going through that over the next one, three, five years, for example? 
Yeah, so it's tough to say over the short term, right? I mean, I think if you zoom out longer term, I think there's probably, I believe, two most probable futures. One is where regulators in the United States, as well as in other parts of the world, decide that they need more control and they therefore continue to shut down uh, the different projects through a variety of mechanisms, whether it's enforcement or regulation, and they replace them with their own central bank digital currencies. That's one probable outcome. Another probable outcome is that there is a lack of coordination and the decentralized independent actors are able to really flourish as an ecosystem that gains widespread adoption. And then therefore regulation kind of encircles that and continues its adoption. I'd say in both places, I'm personally very bullish on Bitcoin and Ethereum because I believe that they're really fundamental layers of this technology. I think there's lots of other very interesting layer ones out there that are doing um, important work, but I think they have a uh, big head start, Bitcoin and ETH. And so that to me really is the reason why I'm personally bullish on them. And then I think a lot of real world asset tokenization is something that's important and the infrastructure layers that enable that and the you know traditional actors that adopt that will really see benefit because there's a lot of kind of nuances in the system and challenges in terms of settlement time and centralized clearing that can be dealt with in a better fashion if there's a lot of tokenization of real world assets and those things move on chain. I think that's a really big first step over this next one to three to five years to ensure that there's enough institutional adoption and capture of the traditional players that whether people like it or not, have enough uh, market power that they need to be a part of the system for digital assets to really maintain a position in the long term. Yeah, let's pull something up on screen here. I want to take a look at KRE. This is the Spider S&P Regional Banking ETF. Year to date, uh, what you can see there obviously is a significant loss of value. It looks like about one third loss of value year to date. Uh, obviously, some of the challenges that we've seen here in the regional banking sector in the United States reflected in that price. We're talking about this off camera, and I wanted to sort of give you my thoughts on what some of the broad driving factors are here and how it intersects with crypto. I mean, I think there are two principal factors here, one durable and long-term, and one relatively uh, short-term, but still having a significant impact. First, the longer-term factor is the digitization of everything. If you think about how quickly a bank run unfolded in 1985 compared to how quickly a bank run unfolds in 2023. It's obviously a dramatic difference. A fast bank run in the 1980s or 1990s may have been two weeks. A fast bank run here in 2023, uh, maybe a few hours. So tremendous challenges in terms of the, the you know, it's almost like the flip side of the opportunity, the ability uh, to move capital very quickly uh, when you have uh, a crisis and confidence in a lender uh, can become a downside. And the second, uh, more sort of tactical, shorter term impact that we've seen here that's clearly a driver of everything that we're seeing is what's happening with monetary policies, specifically the rate hiking cycle that the Fed is now engaged in, obviously uh, between 475 and 500 basis points right now on the federal fund rate. Tomorrow, we've got a meeting coming up, obviously significant uh, headwinds in the market today. Last time I checked, the S&P was off about one and three quarter percent on the day uh, on this uh, sort of trepidation of what's going to happen next. Talk about how you see those two broad trends interacting, the 
durable trend of digitization on the one hand and on the other, the tactical factor of what's happening in the macroeconomic cycle right now, Justin. Yeah, so really important issues that you're bringing up there. I would say the speed of these bank failures is something that's very interesting. I think we can think a little bit about um, the classic kind of like bank failure if you're a fan of Christmas movies and It's a Wonderful Life, uh, bug or feature that it's hard to take money out of a bank. And at some point it was definitely a feature because it was enabling right. uh, the prevention of these runs, right. right? That move by, you know, concerted action and herd mentality. So today we've created a system through technology that enables both the dissemination of information and the movement of money so rapidly that these bank failures uh, can happen much more quickly. And we're seeing how they unfold. Um, you know, you're looking at the regional banks and the pricing. This was very predictable. I mean, we've been through these cycles before, we've had rate raising, we've had failures of institutions as a result of systematic and planned rate hikes. This isn't the first time this has happened. We've had SNL crisis before um, that is similar. We've had one of the first major uh, national banks go down in the early 1980s, first Pennsylvania, which went down as a result of rate hikes. And interestingly, that bank had you know really gone long on treasuries thinking it was not possible to lose money on treasuries and yet rates right. moved the other way and the value of those on a mark-to-market basis were so well justin let's let's explain rate. that this because this is the, the one of the challenges we see is the asset liability mismatch uh, obviously the withdrawals uh, of deposits are happening on uh, on the asset side of the balance sheet but uh, the other liability the deposits are a liability of the bank the deposits are a liability of the bank, yeah. So, and and but the asset side of the balance sheet. I'm sorry, offsetting that, you have what's happening on the asset side of the balance sheet, uh, which is uh, what's happening to the value of U.S. Treasuries. This may be confusing uh, for some people because um, you know this idea that you can't lose money on Treasuries. This is something that's separate uh, from what's happening right now with the debt ceiling debate, the risk of potential default. Uh, this is just a mark-to-market issue. So you have these assets that are held on the balance sheet uh, as longer-term assets. They don't have to get mark-to-market. Uh, and then when you see the rise in rates, the subsequent decline in the value uh, of the bonds, uh, rates uh, and price move in opposite direction on bonds. Uh, and you see this with the challenge that's happening uh, on the liability side of the balance sheet. It's a liability to the bank uh, and is obviously uh, the deposits of individuals. And you have these two things happening simultaneously. Uh, it creates a perfect storm where you get, well, you get what we've gotten now uh, with these four failures happening in relatively rapid succession. Three out of the four largest bank failures in U.S. history have now taken place within the last 60 days. So I think what's really important here to understand is that this rising interest rate environment is pulling down the you know, relative value of the bank's assets. When they've made long-term loans at low interest rates, or they've purchased treasuries at low interest rates, or they've purchased certain types of securitized bonds at uh, interest rate environment that was different than it is today, the value of those assets is rapidly decreasing. Uh, we've seen that, the charts that are out that show the delta between the regional banks, um, asset prices and the book value, it's pretty extraordinary the losses they're sitting on. They have the ability to allow those assets to mature though, and so unless they have a demand on the liquidity needs, 
then they're fine, right? So liquidity is king in these environments, which is why in some cases they're talking about is the liquidity coverage rule being applied to as many banks as it should be. Uh, but again, those are arbitrary lines that are drawn around how many days does a bank have the ability to withstand uh, deposit withdrawals and their estimates of how much withdrawals will come. And we're seeing that the percentage of withdrawals of deposits from these banks that are under pressure is vastly exceeding the expectations. Um, when First Republic announced that it had lost $100 billion of its deposit base in a matter of weeks, I think that was shocking to the market. Yeah, because and this and this happened in the wake. We should point out of Silicon Valley Bank, uh, which was uh, the second uh, sort of domino to fall in this chain after Silvergate. Uh, and what you see then is this this I guess the fear uh, and why you saw the backstop happen in the case of uh, of uh, of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank is there's this risk. Uh, what happens if you have a significant amount of withdrawals? from small and regional banks, uh, what happens, medium-sized banks, small banks, regional banks, and capital flight to the GSIBs, the uh, global systemically important banks, that would have significant ramifications for the macroeconomic outlook of the United States. Yeah, so it's interesting. The United States is a quirk a little bit in the world, considering the number of banks we have. If you look at some other countries, they pretty much only have what we would describe as systematically important banks. You know, it's a few banks that manage the entire banking industry. Canada. 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 One that looks very much like the United States, except for that significant attribute. Exactly. And so that has both a historic precedent, like reason why that exists, but it also has real world implications today. You know, I would argue that the vast middle of the swath of banks in terms of size are really in a problematic space because they're not close enough to their community to have those deep ties and deep connections to really withstand these shocks where bankers actually know the people very intimately and they know their community, they know how to lend and they know who's borrowing. And they're not also at scale where they can withstand this, that there's very little risk of flight because again, it's a fear. It's a lack of confidence in the system particularly given that the FDIC has stepped forward and guaranteed the deposits in the wake of uh, Silver, Silvergate and Signature. So there was probably very low likelihood, if not zero likelihood, that the depositors at First Republic were going to lose uh, money if it failed. The FDIC was stuck in a position where it was highly likely, if not 100% certain, to guarantee those deposits. And yet the depositors said, I can get a better return somewhere else and there's risk. Why not just eliminate that risk? And so in that class of uh, depositor, they're going to move to some of the largest banks that are they're safe. They feel safe in. It's a feeling of safety. And I think the large national banks have this capability. You see in the JP Morgans and Banks of America. And then I think the smallest community banks can make uh, their depositors feel safe as well. I think that mm. this middle swath of banks if we look out over a decade, I would predict that most are consolidated and gone, you know, whether that's through acquisition or through merger. And what's the risk of that to the broader uh, macroeconomic sort of funding diversity here in the United States? One of the reasons why the United States has been such a dynamic economy uh, is because we had a banking sector that could be small and flexible and dynamic. You could have specialization from a regional perspective, from a sector perspective. And as a consequence of that, you had the capacity uh, of, you know, essentially 
uh, small and medium-sized enterprises to raise money in a much more flexible and dynamic way than they could, for example, in Canada. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I would argue that the size of the banking sector is sufficient to continue to provide that capital allocation needs that the U.S. Uh, has thrived on in the past few decades. And beyond that, I would say that, you know, that's where there's opportunity in digital assets as well, though, because now you're going to see hopefully alternative funding mechanisms and enablement layers that come forward that enable individuals to borrow more dynamically from a diverse set of um, funders. But we have a very interesting problem in terms of how do we take fractional banking to digital assets? And whether that's good or bad, I'm not saying, right. but it is a fundamental driver of how the banking system creates money. So it's not as simple as saying, oh, we can just switch from you know fiat to digital asset and everything will be better. Uh, right. Because we don't have leverage, leverage is essential and leverage is exactly what you're talking about in terms of capital formation and access right. to um, funding. And so without that, you know, the economy would be at a standstill. So this time, this period of time is interesting. And I think how people will react to that and what solutions will come out in the next five, 10 years will really determine whether we're able to create a digital asset economy that thrives. I mean, there are certainly more uh, open questions. There are answers at this point. Uh, there are folks in the space who are talking about a fully reserved model uh, with a fee-based banking uh, structure. But obviously, uh, as of right now, for all of its flaws, for all of its challenges, and people in the crypto space are very critical uh, often about fractional reserve banking, and they'll point uh, to incidents like we've seen here over the last two or three months as evidence of those challenges. But the reality is uh, that in many ways, fractional reserve banking, uh, though imperfect in many ways, has served the U.S. economy uh, to a great extent. Obviously, if you, you just look at the history uh, from the end of World War II uh, until the beginning of the 21st century, it's just a pretty extraordinary period of dramatic economic boom fueled by fact, fractional reserve banking for all of its imperfections, challenges, uh, occasional crises, uh, and uh, and also, you know, it's important to point out some of the the frauds that we've seen and challenges that we've seen. I'm thinking of the SNL crisis here. Uh, it is not a perfect system, but it is one that, on balance, has worked out relatively well for the United States in terms of global competitiveness and aggregate product productivity. I agree. I think it's much like democracy. It might not be the best system, but it's the best system we've found so far. Um, I would argue that this really goes down to comes down to regulation, and it's how do regulators think more creatively? How do they come up with different solutions, and how do they ensure they have tools in their toolbox that enable uh, prudent oversight and ensuring safe and sound banking practices? whether that extends into the digital asset space through regulation, which would be nice to see in the United States, a comprehensive regulatory regime so that there's clarity. Uh, but ultimately, you know, regulators, if they're simply going to raise and lower interest rates, we're going to continue in a boom-bust cycle. There have to be different levers and different tools that come into play. And, you know, we're not what we're not talking about here is also some of those tools that have come into play that have led the Federal Reserve to be one of the banks in the world that has the largest delta in the mark-to-market with their holdings. So right. that's a really problematic situation. And that's because of the way we're responding to these crises. And we're just applying a, a very simplistic 
set of tools to a very complicated problem set. Yeah, the best uh, system we've found so far, which of course uh, does not mean it will be the best system we'll find in the future. That's one of the reasons I think uh, people come to cryptocurrency, digital assets more generally, uh, because of the uh, potential to find new and innovative solutions to how you finance operations for companies, how you do capital accumulation, all of those interesting questions. I wanted to talk a little bit about something that affects people in the crypto space as well as people outside of the crypto space, uh, which is something I know a topic you're interested in, which is the future of work. I was trolling this morning on Twitter uh, asking the question, why has no one made the argument that all or mostly all commercial real estate is essentially a dead weight loss, a kind of uh, tax that happens on goods and services in the United States? You know, I'm here in the Real Vision offices today. Uh, that's why my background is different for our regular viewers. Uh, and I was saying on Twitter how it's it's great to come and meet with my employees and my, my fellow colleagues here, other employees at Real Vision. It's a wonderful experience to hang out with them. But like, do we really need to do it in this physical space? Does Real Vision need to tie up capital uh, in a long-term, you know, 36-month commercial lease or whatever the terms are? I don't know what the terms are on the lease, which tells you that most people don't care about their commercial lease, the company they work, as long as everything goes right uh, and they have an, uh, ongoing operations to participate in, you don't really care. Uh, so this is a question that I want to ask you more broadly in terms of what your thoughts are about the future of work uh, virtualization and its intersection with the digital asset cryptocurrency world. So I would argue that it comes down to community, right? I think digital assets has really fostered a new kind of online set of community and allowing people with like interests to connect. And often that's one of the reasons people adopt new technologies, a different way to connect with people. Um, and when we look at commercial real estate, it's changing because fewer people are going into the office. And right. I think that's obvious, right? Like in this environment, people don't need to be in an office to collaborate effectively with colleagues, whether they're locally or internationally. And so I, I definitely feel for people that are in the commercial real estate space. I don't see how um, it's going to come back anywhere near where it was pre-pandemic. I think that people have become used to a different way of working and right. that's never going to change. And if you think about what that means for a decade or two decades from now, I think it's going to enable smaller teams to do bigger things. Mm. And that's not just because of digital assets and the infrastructure that maybe will enable people around the world to collaborate without trust in one another on a financial arrangement. I think it brings into play artificial intelligence and the ability to leverage systems that can make a few people as productive as a much larger team. And that's going to pull down the need for commercial real estate as well. So right. I think it's a really a reformation of the way our economy works. And I hope that it drives more you know, kind of community engagement, tying that back to our banking conversation. I think if you are a sharp community banker, despite whatever size bank you work at, if you understand the people deeply and what they need and how they want to form businesses and pay their employees and, you know, work, you're going to have opportunity to help build new businesses. And I think that comes at the expense of commercial real estate in the large metro centers because people don't need to be there to get the jobs that they need or you know build the communities that they want to live in yeah it's a very interesting point you make this notion of this raise this point about uh, communities which of course uh, you know, in the physical space seem to be diminishing as we see, uh, for example, the working from an office environment uh, starting to fragment and break up and 
the rise of these digital communities and potentially uh, for the uh, digital asset space that you and I are both passionate about to facilitate and those connections and those networks in a virtual way. It really is a fascinating, fascinating topic. It really is. I'm I'm eager to see what it what it means in the future. I have two sons that are 11 and 8, and I I think that I know nothing about what world they will live in and how they will work and how they will collaborate with colleagues in the future. Um, and I'm excited to see what plays out. Yeah, very well said, uh, Justin. Final thoughts. Great conversation. I hope we can have you back to continue it. Uh, final thoughts. Key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with. Yeah, I would say, you know, I'm very bullish on the digital assets. I think that ultimately it's going to come down to the community being proper stewards of the conversation. And I think it's unfortunate what happened with the FTX and SBF debacle because it evaporated the trust in the system and it set back the digital asset movement by a number of years at a minimum. And I think that it's incumbent upon the community to really drive the conversation and ensure that you know the real world use cases and the true benefits of digital assets uh, are discussed and known and we can kind of move away from the conversation of frauds which you know are always going to exist in every type of asset class and technology because there's always some grifter who's going to want to take advantage of people and we have an opportunity to and I'm going to really lean into what this future opportunity set brings and, you know, don't let a good crisis go to waste. There's opportunity here to remake what's going on now. And, and clearly the system needs uh, to be shaken up and reformed in a better way to work for everyone. Justin, so well said. Let's do this again soon. I would love to. Thanks so much for having me today. That's it for today. Remember to sign up to Real Vision. It's free. Go to realvision.com forward slash crypto, realvision.com forward slash crypto. I should say Real Vision is not free. Real Vision crypto is free. Uh, go and check it out right now. And please make sure to join us tomorrow. We have a truly blockbuster guest. Paul Gruel, Chief Legal Officer, will join us live. That's 9 a.m. Pacific time, noon Eastern or 5 p.m. if you're in London. Thanks for watching. Today's episode of the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing is in partnership with Origin Protocol's Origin Dollar. Put your stablecoins to work in DeFi at realvision.com slash origin dollar.